Justin Cox and Brad Williams and we are the Between the Uprights College Football Show. Well fans, we're now getting into the middle of the season. We have week three on the horizon. We're starting to learn a lot about some of these teams um, now that we have a little bit larger of a sample size and there were some really surprising upsets uh, this past weekend. So we got a lot to get to. We've got several big games coming up on Saturday so let's get to it. First off, Oregon, in the game of the day, upset Ohio State at the Horseshoe. This was the first time that Ryan Day had ever lost a home game. I was really surprised by this. What about you? Yeah, you know, I just think what I'm more surprised about is the Ducks thoroughly dominating the game. And I do feel like, I'm going to ask you this question, do you think of more of an Oregon win or an Ohio State loss? I thought it was more of an Oregon win because their offensive line manhandled the Buckeyes. C.J. Verdell had 161 rushing yards and two touchdowns. And as a team, the Ducks had 269 rushing yards. That was a very impressive performance from an offensive line that we didn't know how good they were going to be coming into the season. On the other side... Yeah, I think I feel like Oregon at no point in that game felt like that they were in danger of losing it. And I don't think Ohio State is a bad team. I just believe that people are simply freaking out because they're not ex- as good as we thought they were going to be. Like, we thought Ohio State was going to be up there and an elite team. I just think that right now they are a very good team. But it's hard, it's hard to win when you allow C.J. Verdell to tear, tear you apart. And the fact is, is that the Ohio State defense wasn't able to set the edge. It would, it, They were just able to not set the edge the entire game, allowed Oregon outside. It was absolutely terrible. And they were going to need to figure out how to stop the run heading into a run-dominant conference. And Ohio State's offense, they played lights out, 612 yards. Like, that's all you can really ask for in offense. And they just somehow lost a football game to Oregon. Oregon outfit made Oregon was the more physical team. And Ohio State was just never able to keep up. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's really impressive by Oregon that they were really never in doubt in this game, despite C.J. Stroud playing well. He had 484 passing yards and three touchdowns. I mean, he did have one pick, but honestly, that's about as good as you can expect from a guy playing a top-10 team in a second career start. Uh, I do want to say, though, not all to be concerned about with Ohio State because uh, you know who also lost his second uh, start of his career to at home versus a bird team? J.T. Barrett, and he went on to break the Big Ten record for most career wins. Um, keep, keeping it in the Big Ten, though, the Iowa Hawkeyes were the, another big, big winner from this past weekend as they blew past the Cyclones. I was in full control of this rivalry. They haven't lost since 2014. I was really surprised by this one. What was your takeaway? Well, Cox, I'm going to have to say your preview of the season is getting a little roughed up. Are you still a fan of the Cyclones after this? I am, but honestly, I'm starting to wonder if Iowa might be a playoff team. I don't think you can put that to Iowa quite yet. I mean, the way that they have won their games thus far is the turnover battle. 
They scored 20 points off four turnovers, and they're not really, really effectively able to move the ball. I mean, Iowa's offense is completely inept. They only moved the ball for 179 yards, and after yards came on one touchdown drive of 71. So if you subtract that, they gained 108 yards the entire game. They're really just living off turnovers at this point, and we both know turnovers can be fickle. They can come in dozens, or they can come not at all. However, Iowa has moved its winning streak against ranked teams to five, which is the first such streak since 1960. Iowa's in the right direction, but I won't say that they're a playoff team. Yeah, uh, as you said, Iowa did nothing special offensively, but they forced four turnovers on defense, including three picks of Brock Purdy. This is the second straight week this Iowa Hawkeyes defense has completely made a fool out of an apparently good quarterback. Last week it was Michael Penix. This week it was Brock Purdy. This Iowa Hawkeyes defense, given that they're playing in one of the weaker divisions in the country in the Big Ten West, I think they have a legitimate chance here to possibly make it to the play, uh, make it to the Big Ten title game, either undefeated or with only one loss, and have a legit shot at the playoffs, which is something I did not expect coming into the season. Uh, one team that's definitely not going to be doing that though is the Texas Longhorns, who got destroyed in Fayetteville by Arkansas. 40 to 21. They could not get anything going on the day. And I, I gotta say, I did think that the upset potential was there, but I didn't expect it to be like this. Yeah, I'm just gonna ask you a very simple question here. Should Sam Pittman be considered for Coach of the Year as a candidate? Not yet, but if he keeps this up, yes. I mean, I say that you can at least put him on the list of like 16 candidates. Because he has brought the Razorbacks pretty much from dead by building a solid culture and foundation. This is a Razorbacks team that two years ago got absolutely obliterated at home to Western Kentucky, which is one of the lower teams in, I believe, the Sun Belt? It's either Sun Belt or Conference USA, but yeah. Conference USA, my bad. The game seemed to be the declaration of progress at Arkansas. Arkansas won their first game at home against Texas in 40 years, and they did so by dominating the ground. For more yardage than Texas, gained the entire game. And this, you got to think about this. Arkansas had offensive line was 120th last year. I believe in sacks or basically passing defense, but they were able to hold the ball or run the ball for 333 yards. That is a complete turnaround of the offensive line. That was completely shaky last year. The Arkansas defense made it a nightmare game for Texas the entire night as the new Sarkeesian offense just could not find their footing. And they were held to their lowest amount of yardage in six years. Arkansas is on the right path. I think that they have a very good chance to actually make it a ball game this year. Yeah, the Razorbacks outgained the Longhorns on the day in total, 471 to 256. When you basically double your opponent in not just yards but score, I mean, that that's just an uncalled, like an, an unseen thing uh, with one of the teams being as good as we expected Texas to be. But the only team that did not have uh, or that had a better day than the Razorbacks was the Razorbacks social media team. I don't know if you saw this, but their their uh, media team went off. They started posts with the horns down signs, with welcome to the SEC, 
They gave Wendy's a run for their money on best social media roast after the game. Um, Sticking with an uh, SEC rival of the Longhorns, though, Texas A&M, in an old Big 12 battle, narrowly escaped the Colorado Buffaloes. Uh, I was really surprised by this. A&M has been a top-five team so far this season, but if they play like this, they don't deserve to be up there. Well, what tells me, and you can stop me if I'm wrong, I just think that they have a death problem at QB. Yes. King took a shot to the knee, and the Aggies needed every frame from Zach Calzada that he could absolutely mustard. I really think that the lesson here is that without King running the show and having Calzada in, um, they're going to be in a lot of trouble. Calzada gets one warm-up game against New Mexico. But by the time King comes back from his injury, the Aggies are going to have two losses. And I'm going to go ahead and say they lose to Arkansas, and then they play Alabama. I think the Texas A&M season is pretty much over for playoff contention after this injury. I agree. And with Calzada, I mean, he really had a bad day. He was under 50% completion percentage and under 200 passing yards. But the other big thing, in my opinion, a much bigger cause for concern for the Aggies, you can make up for, I mean, like you can excuse injuries. What you can't excuse is getting dominated in the trenches by a much lesser opponent. They allowed 171 rushing yards while not breaking the century mark themselves, and they couldn't pass block for Calzada all day either. That was really the reason why the Buffaloes kept this close. And in my opinion... That is something that you cannot have going into a tough SEC West schedule against the likes of Alabama, Auburn, Arkansas, Ole Miss, shoot, even LSU. You cannot get away with not being able to block facing a lot of those teams. That That is a really bad sign for this Aggies team going forward. And one team that changed the course of history, BYU won the Holy War and wrecked the Utah Utes. It was the first time since 2009, BYU has won the Holy War. What was your main takeaway from this game? Well, can we just talk about how a whirlwind it was for BYU? Within 24 hours of accepting their Big 12 invitation, the Cougars snapped a nine-game losing streak dating back to when the Utes were back in the Mountain West. Yeah. Like, that was a huge 24 hours. Jaron Hall was efficient when he needed to be. He threw for three touchdowns. But I think the huge key to me was they kept the monkey off their back. How many times have we seen a team that looks like they're going to break a streak in the fourth quarter, have the monkey on their back, and they start getting a little pushback, and then they absolutely collapse? Shoot, that they happened with the Tennessee-Florida rally. And extend the lead to nine points with a field goal to keep the youth at bay. Great win for the Cougs for not falling under pressure because Utah was having a little rally there, and you had to wonder, were they going to get win number 10? Yeah, we've seen that happen a lot when rivalries start getting long. I mean, we've seen that two, uh, with two different rivalries for Florida, with uh, Tennessee and with Kentucky, before those streaks got broken. Uh, the Utes got wrecked. They lost a turnover battle 2-0, and they could not pass block. Now, they run blocked well for 193 yards, but they couldn't seal the edges when it came to passing downs. Meanwhile, Jaron Hall had a great game for BYU. Now, he only had 149 passing yards, but he did have three touchdowns as well as 92 rushing yards. And he just replaced Zach Wilson just fine. I was impressed by this Cougars output here in this game. Now, one team from the Pac-12 that completely fell flat as well 
was USC, who got stunned by Stanford and got basically run out of the Coliseum. Um, I was really, really stunned by this. Yeah, honestly, I think that you have to look at the fact that uh, USC just probably overlooked it. Stanford is not a good team. In fact, I think they're only like barely favorites over Vanderbilt, and they just completely dominated that game through and through. USC was unable to get anything going throughout that game. And honestly, we're going to get into it later about the firing, but it was just a poor showing for a USC team that went to the Pac-12 championship game last year and lost to probably one of the worst teams in the conference. Yeah, it led to one of the most surprising storylines so far this year, which we'll discuss later. But the Trojans got run out of the stadium on this one. It was 42-13 to at one point before USC made it respectable. But even in garbage time, I think the main stat of the day is that Kadon Slovis got outpassed by Tanner McKee. That says everything in this one. And I got to say, I, I'm, I was shook. Now, the last game we're going to cover was one that was not on our radar to start the week, but ended up on our radar at the end of the week. Uh, we know we've got our comedic duo here, so uh, where do we start with Florida State losing to Jacksonville State? Do we start with the video of the Hail Mary? Yeah, I mean, it was quite incredible, wasn't it? The fact that I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story. So this game is funny to me because, you know, I, I'm at Amazon at night, naturally. And I was watching this game. I had it in on GameCast, and I closed the tab because Jacksonville State had, like, 59 yards to go on a Hail Mary attempt to beat the Seminoles. I'm like, there's no possible way. Now, when you hear that somebody makes a Hail Mary pass, you're thinking it goes all the way to the touchdown, right? Yeah. This ball fell 20 yards short of the touchdown. And they played in a cover two. Why are the Knowles not rushing three and putting everybody back? They they were inspired by the Jets' job against the Raiders last season. That's the only thing I can think of. Like that that makes absolutely no sense. Why you would literally not have everybody guarding that area within like twenty yards, like eight players? Yeah. So. I think the thing that really made it memorable was, like, the gifts of the FSU cheerleaders and how shocked they were. Like, they just look absolutely dumbfounded. You know, they kind of looked like the people in the old uh, Super Hot Fire tapes <laughs> where, like, you know, like, when they're celebrating, like, oh, they were just like, ah. <laughs> was, I don't know what you can say about this, but I think it's an all-time low for the program. Especially, they went out against Notre Dame and played a big game. Came back, lost in overtime. And I did tell you that Florida State, I think, is a wild card team, and most of their games are going to be interesting this year. I just had no idea Jacksonville State was going to be interesting. Yeah, the um, other the other thing I want to add on that video of the Hail Mary was that immediately after Jacksonville State scored the touchdown, they rung it up. They showed a graphic of FSU being one and one, and then they had to get, they had to change it, which I think is hilarious. Uh, this yeah, is actually I, the second time, at least that I can think of, that Jacksonville State has beaten FSU. They also beat them back in two thousand nine, and the main story was other than the hail mary and just the incredible video of it. 
was that Mackenzie Milton couldn't do anything. He only had 133 yards for the air, and this is really bad sign for FSU, but hilarious to laugh about at the same time. Yeah, I also just want to say, like, I, I saw some reports that the locker room's in danger sprouting up, and FSU doesn't have a slouch Wake Forest team coming in. I consider Wake Forest pretty decent, right? Yeah, you had them as your surprise team in the ACC. Yeah. And then Norville has to go – here's a stat for you. Norville has to go 6-4 and four in the next 10 games to reach the win total tagger tad. Wow. That's not going to happen. Norvell has done a worse job at FSU than Taggart. And I think it's just simply a culture issue. We had a whole podcast about it last season. Because they mentally fell apart in the last five minutes of the game, allowing two unanswered scores. And FSU lost sight of where to go and had no solid foundation laid for a program. So any success that they have, like Notre Dame, is very minimal. They have to build a foundation because if they don't build a foundation – it's going to slip, and nobody has been able to build that foundation. Honestly, it might be a house in disrepair, and it really needs a it really needs a handyman to help. And I'm not sure if Norvell is that guy. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Now, moving forward to this week's storylines. First off, we have our AP poll update with a new poll. What stood out to you this week? I personally think that the AP poll is highly favorable to Cincinnati, and I'm going to tell you why. Because, like I said earlier, I don't think Iowa's going to be undefeated. They're going to slip up somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Texas A&M definitely is going to slip up. That slides Cincinnati into top six, and then all they need to do is have a little magic. Mm-hmm. This season has been magical for Ohio State losing. And then you had the shock of Iowa State. And then you had the shock of Clemson. It's like, this is kind of like getting to the point where, you know, Cincinnati, I think, has a really good shot at it. And it is just going to be, I think, maybe a magical season. You look at Oregon, they moved up eight spots. That's a huge move to number four to make what would be a playoff spot. And then, you know, I think the big one also is Arkansas watching themselves in 20. I should have I should have looked it up. I wonder the last time, if you know, when Arkansas was ranked in the top 25. Probably after they beat Florida at the game that you went to, like, what was it, five years ago, six years ago? Yeah, I think it was 2017. Yeah. Like, that's the last time I could think of, probably. Uh, yeah, Oregon's up to four and Iowa's up to five. Uh, I already mentioned it before, but Iowa for playoffs? Question mark. Um, Ohio State still stayed in the top ten, though. Notre Dame is finally falling after the Florida State result and barely beating Toledo. Out of the four playoff teams from last year, two of them already have losses, and a third, Notre Dame, has two very unconvincing wins. Arkansas, BYU, and Michigan are all in as USC, Texas, and Utah fall out. I thought this was interesting and a good sign for the Big Ten because they're getting more teams ranked and more teams in the top ten. Now, our other weekly storylines, first off, where better to start with than Clay Helton getting fired at USC? I honestly think that this might have been a premature firing because you're not going to find a head coach this early into the season, correct? Like, nobody's going to rest their current season and be like, oh, yep, I'm going to USC. It seemed very premature. Yeah, I'm not stunned that Helton got fired. I am flabbergasted that it happened at this point in the season, though. 
He's been on the hot seat for a few years. He had a great start to his career, but the program failed to live up to the hype the last several years. But at the same time, what are you doing firing him in week two? Like, if you fire a coach before November, you're you have no shot of really being able to get into the market as early as people think that you can. So I really don't understand that. Yeah, like yeah, think about it. If you're gonna start talking to candidates and things, I don't think anybody's gonna be risking their team season for a USC job right now because then you're gonna earn a negative reputation. Like it's way too early to do this. They have an interim head coach now and I think they I think that pretty much just surrenders their entire season, right? Yeah, probably. They just kind of scrapped it and were like, oh, well, we're not, here we go again. And they just threw it away. They honestly should have probably done it after they lost to ASU in November of six, right? Mm-hmm. Now, now something, the next storyline is something that you brought to me. So I'm going to let you take complete control over this one. You sent a text to me late Saturday night that said, I've learned nothing matters from last season. Yeah, I did. I think everything that we learned last season has been completely irrelevant. I'm going to give you three examples why. So we're going to start with Louisiana and Billy Napier, right? That mm-hmm. was one of the biggest stories last season. Billy Napier was on everybody's list as a coaching hire. But they got taken to the woodshed by Texas. And then I'm not sure if you saw their game last week. They went toe-to-toe with Nicholas State, a team that isn't even in the FCS top 25. Wow. Louisiana is supposed to not have that great of a season, and their Cinderella run might be over. Iowa State, another Cinderella story. You know, they had, I think, 10 wins, first time since the Titanic sunk. Mm-hmm. They just got absolutely trounced by Iowa. So what was supposed to be Matt Campbell and Brock Purdy's, like, honeymoon season, where they're in Iowa State's back, baby. They're going to win the national title. They're going to make it to the playoff. It has become an absolute nightmare. They barely escaped Northern Iowa, and then they lost to their main rivals. And I'm starting to think that they're just not going to be able to get to where they need to be. And then you look at Indiana, but Indiana has Indiana has a chance to prove themselves this week. But yeah. they're in trouble because they're maybe losing to their season this weekend against Cincinnati, which is a game that we're going to cover later. But you're looking at all these Cinderella teams that we thought that were going to be good, that the big higher names of the last offseason were going to be good. And there's only two ones that have lived up, and that's Coastal, that's Liberty. Mm-hmm. So I think that everything that we learned last season with the Cinderella stories and the chaos that happened was just kind of a fluke. What about you? Yeah, I agree. And to to add more teams to that mix, we talked about the playoff, or I threw a stab out the playoff team from last year. But then also UNC has taken a major step back. And two teams are back but looked horrible last year. Oregon. Yes, they made the Fiesta Bowl, but does anyone think that team looked good? They just happen to be the, the least bad team out of the Pac-12. And all of a sudden, they are just steamrolling this season. Also, Penn, Penn State appears to be back, and they had a really rough season that actually put James Franklin on the hot seat for a little bit uh, last year. So, yeah, I'm, I'm starting to agree with you that we got to go back to the tape from 2019 to be able to discern anything. 
Now, we each have our own personal storylines for this week as well. You have one. I have one. What's your storyline for this week? Okay, so I changed mine up. It was, I picked Florida State lineman takes awkward time to propose to his girlfriend. Now, I'm not sure if you saw this. I think so. Didn't he propose after the game? Yes. So, Brady Scott wanted to make it forever with his girlfriend, but he proposed after the loss to Jacksonville State. So meanwhile, Jacksonville State is celebrating in the touchdown. They're planning their flag in Central Field. This man is proposing to his girlfriend. <laughs> and I am just absolutely stunned because to me, you know, if I'm a football player, I just lost probably the biggest game in school history. <laughs> and I'm going to propose to my girlfriend to commemorate that date. <laughs> tells me that they're like you know it's just not about football to these kids yeah do you know if she said yes she said yes wow now now that right there is the big upset of the week right there my friends i would have thought she would have said no (laughs) like we're not unfamiliar with this you know ian johnson from boise state proposed to his girlfriend after upsetting oklahoma in 2007 that's kind of when you're supposed to do it? Yeah. So they shared engagement photos on Sunday. And on the third one on is on the field. And he got a lot of ribbing from social media. When a photo was seen on social media, Scott took some ribbing because because they were starting to go like, hey, what are you doing proposing your girlfriend after losing? And they're like, hey, you... I guess he's proposing before she realizes he's not able to go to the league. (laughs) And what he did was he retweeted a few people questioning his timing with a link to his registry asking for contribution. (laughs) Now, I just think that this is, I, I think this is a huge culture issue. And, you know, it's nice that he proposed, but if you don't think you're going to win a game for the rest of the season, why wouldn't you propose before a game or something? Yeah, or like, shoot, if you're going to propose to your girlfriend after a loss, why not do it like last week when they almost upset Notre Dame? I just have no idea, and what this is telling me is that FSU, their culture is bad. Like, maybe maybe I'm overlooking it, but like, if I sat there and proposed to somebody, I I would be like, yeah, they're probably going to say no after this, like, and it's not because of like it's out of love or whatever, but it's like it's it seems like a very inappropriate moment to be like, yeah, and yeah, I'm gonna marry you. Like, why wouldn't you do it pregame for a big game so it pumps up your teammates, it gets people going, you know, yeah, defend exactly. this house, whatever. And I just think it's a very funny time to decide. Hey, you know what? I want to spend the rest of my life with with you forever. Like, wow. My storyline is with the other or with another um, Florida-based team, the Miami Hurricanes, but most notably a cat at Hard Rock Stadium. At halftime of the Miami App State football game, a feral cat in the stadium was caught on a ledge. He eventually lost his grip and fell off down to the lower deck. But do not be concerned. Two Miami Hurricanes fans with an American flag caught him. And the stadium went absolutely nuts. 
This is an incredible video. The person who caught the cat held it up like Simba. You gotta, you gotta love to see it. I thought that that was probably the highlight of the game. Like when ESPN, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> so, you know, yes. ESPN has like the top <laughs> headlines, right? Yeah, that should have been top uh, number one, top ten play. <laughs> that was a top headline right there. Like they literally had it on the side of the website. Oh, Miami fan catches cat. Also, Miami wins. <laughs> or something yeah. around that <laughs> term. And I thought it was the funniest thing because I'm like, imagine having your entire program that was supposed to be very good this year, you know, a top ten team, outshined by a cat falling <laughs> thirty feet. Yeah. Uh, I know we're going to do something different for our outro this week, but I did also think about cat scratch fever. <laughs> oh, gosh. We're going to done uh, angelical cats. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, moving on, we're, we got our bread and butter for this week. We've got our game picks. we got a big slate this weekend to go through. First off, battle up north is the Cincinnati Bearcats. Ironically enough, another cat. Go on to take on the Indiana Hoosiers up in um, uh, Bloomington. Who do you think wins and why? So, to me, this is going to be – let's just talk about the importance of this game. This is going to be a litmus test that the committee will be, be using to compare Cincy to the Big Ten, right? Like, yes. Oh, how bad did you beat Indiana? Am I correct about that? Yes. So, there's one problem I have with Indiana, and that Penix has not returned the same after his ACL. He seems to have lost his magical touch, and on 16 attempts, he only had 68 passing yards. He did this against Idaho, and to put into perspective, Idaho used to be an FBS school, but it demoted to FCS. I don't know the exact reason why, but they weren't winning in the FBS, so maybe that's why. Yeah, the the one lone thing going for the Vandals is that their stadium is cool. Like, that's it. (laughs) Yeah, they're also in Idaho. There's nothing really going for them. Yeah. Um, Indiana is facing an absolute monster against Cincinnati. And Cincinnati has only allowed 260 yards per game defensively, although that's against some weaker opponents like Murray State. And then Ritter has been absolutely consistent this season, 34 of 47, 538 yards and six touchdowns. This game means everything for both programs because Cincinnati, if they win this, they keep their shot for the playoff still alive. If Indiana loses, it instantly becomes letdown season. So who do I think comes out victorious in Bloomington? I'm going Cincinnati. I'm going Cincinnati as well. Coming into this year, we thought this would be a really, really fun, close game. But Indiana just flat out has not looked good. And as you alluded to, Michael Penix has clearly taken a step back. Meanwhile, I trust Des Ritter at quarterback for Cincy and Luke Fickle to dominate this one in old school, control the clock, make no mistakes, win by your defense and your uh, and, uh, efficient offense uh, method. I think Cincinnati wins this one. The question is just going to be by how much. Um, moving on, we have a rivalry game that hasn't been played in a, a hot minute. Virginia Tech and West Virginia playing for the Black Diamond Trophy, which is uh, one of my favorite trophies in all of sports just for the trophy itself, if I'm being honest. Who do you think wins this one and why? So, I have Virginia Tech in a low-scoring affair. Virginia Tech is a team that fully relies on game possession, and honestly, they do not set that world on fire on offense. It's very slow pace. It's near as West Virginia. West Virginia, Virginia Tech, when you think about those teams, you think about teams that can get in the 30s easily, but neither team has been able to do that much this season. Virginia Tech 
this season is all about the grind and holding on. Virginia Tech runs a rather balanced offense. So, I think that Virginia Tech wins this and a rather low scoring. Scoring affair is 21-17, 17-10. Yeah, I got Somewhere the around that mark, it's going to be a very low scoring game. I got the Hokies as well. They dominated UNC to start the season. And West Virginia, in their lone semi-tough game, lost to Maryland. Also, the advanced metrics clearly favor the Hokies in this matchup, such as SP+. I, I like this Hokies team uh, as a sleeper team for the uh, ACC this year. I'm going with the Hokies. Moving on to the team that was my storyline of the week, the Miami Hurricanes this week are hosting the Michigan State Spartans down in Miami. How do you think things shake out in, in uh, South Beach? So Miami has the home field advantage, advantage against the Spartans, which are playing in a rare game that they haven't played since 1989, these two schools. Miami is due for an actual good performance. The last two weeks have been absolutely ugly with a slaughter fest from Alabama and then a slugfest against an App State team. But don't beach fooled. App State is a really good Sun Belt team. Yeah. Eric King has another chance to show himself as a great quarterback, but just hasn't had that same vigor as last season's offensive production. Mel Tucker has done a great job. After an inconsistency last season, he Frankenstein the roster through the transfer portal, bringing guys in to be an instant success, and seems to have worked thus far. But I think it's going to be a long trip for Michigan State. They're going to come down here. They're going to lose a close one to the Miami Hurricanes. But, you know, I think Michigan State's on the right track. I agree with you on everything you said. Michigan State dominated Northwestern to start the season, and this Spartans team is looking up. However, De'Eric King is the best playmaker the Spartans have faced in quite a while. He's electric through the air and on the ground, and I think that he's just going to be too much for the Spartans team to handle. Also, do not forget about the effects of heat and humidity that can play into this game as well, with it being a day game. that Michigan State is not going to be used to facing conditions that are that hot. I got the Miami Hurricanes here. I've got them by probably a touchdown and 10 points. Moving back up north with the North versus South battle that's going to be the game day game of the week, we have the Auburn Tigers traveling up to face the Penn State Nittany Lions in the first Penn State whiteout game of the season. Who do you think wins and why? Well, let's go into the history of the whiteout game, right? So it started in 2004, and right now, if you look at the record, they're 8-8, eight and eight, which is not very spectacular, but it is for their biggest game of the year. Yeah. They defeated number 16 Michigan in the last whiteout game in 2019. Let's look at where Auburn is. Auburn has to self-scout before they look at their uh, uh, opponents because the coach is still kind of figuring out who they are. They had two easy teams come up. They had Akron and, I believe, Alabama State. And they just absolutely trounced them. But there's a big question mark that needs to be answered because we have a Jekyll and Hyde situation. We have Bo Nix. Now, at home... Bo Nix has a completion rate of 63%, 192.5 yards per game, 15 touchdowns, and 9 rushing touchdowns. When you look at on the road, he is 54.5%, 179.7 passing yards per game, 9 touchdowns, 10 interceptions, and 5 rushing touchdowns. He is a completely different player on the road, and he's going to be playing in one of the most electric atmospheres that college football has to offer. Now, Penn State was thoroughly dominated in all offensive stats against Wisconsin, 
and won that game by forcing turnovers. And they need to do the same against Auburn. They need to force these turnovers, or it could be a long day. Which team dominates the line of scrimmage, wins this game? I believe that both teams are very run-centric, and only when someone falls behind, the passing game will truly come out. Auburn hasn't been tested, and it comes down to if I can trust Bo Nix on the road. I can't. Penn State, but Auburn beats the spread. Yeah, mentioning Bo Nix, in his 12 starts in his career away from Jordan-Hare Stadium, he has never surpassed 300 passing yards, and he's only thrown three touchdown passes in the game once. Meanwhile, Penn State looked fantastic versus Wisconsin. They won in the trenches with good veteran quarterback play and by winning the turnover battle. I think those things are going to continue here in one of the toughest environments in all of college football. I've got Penn State winning, but I do think it's going to be a little bit more comfortable than what you think. Moving out west with a ranked showdown uh, late at night. This one's going to be a lot of fun, in my opinion. We have the Arizona State Sun Devils facing the BYU Cougars. Who do you think wins here? Well, here's a stat for you that I think is going to blow your mind. Are you ready for it? Yeah. So if BYU were to win against the Sun Devils, it will be the first time since 1952 they open consecutive seasons with a 3-0 record. Whoa. I thought that they won a national, they won a national title in 80. Yeah, in 84. 85? 84. 84. 84. And the thing is, is that you would think that, that those type of teams, that the powerhouse that they had back in the 80s and 90s, that they would have strong three consecutive wins together. I saw that stat and I was like, no way. And I started flipping through to college football like reference or flipping through like my, all my resources and I'm like, oh my God, that's a true fact. Wow, that's um, crazy. So I think Arizona State arguably is one of the most talented teams in Pac-12. And BYU has surprised most everyone after losing Zach Wilson with Hall who was struck expertly against Utah. They have a dominant running back in Algier that had bruised his way to 107 yards, carrying the ball 27 times last week. And right now, the Sun Devils haven't showed all that they got, and they played some easy teams. They return a defense who played lights out, only allowing 187 yards per game. And Jaden Daniels has been absolutely spectacular, 30 of 41, 307 yards, and two touchdowns, rushing yards, he has 19 carries and 165 yards. BYU had their upside game last week against Utah, but I think they're primed for a letdown this week against Arizona State. I pick the Sun Devils in Provo. Yeah, even without that stat about 1952, I'm going with Arizona State here as well. BYU is riding high after that huge win last week. It was their first win against the Utah Utes since 2009. So I expect them to kind of take a step back and kind of fall flat here. Jaden Daniels, even if they don't do that, is a good enough quarterback to take advantage of this Cougars defense. Also, worth noting, Arizona State brings back 20 stars from a squad that last year went 3-0 against the spread on the road. I've got Arizona State here. I got them fairly comfortably. Now, we've got two games left. Both of them we saved for the last because they directly involve teams that we care about. Uh, at least from that I care about. One of them, I know you're a completely neutral party, party on. But first, Purdue is traveling to face Notre Dame up in South Bend. Notre Dame has struggled so far this season. Do you think that they survive here, or do you think Purdue gets them? I think that they're going to survive. This is, I have several things why. But I'm going to start off with my big concern about Notre Dame. 
and Nestor Bunyan. So if you take away their two large runs by Kyrie Williams, which is 43 yards, and Tyler Buchner, who had 26 yards, you end up with this stat against for Notre Dame. Notre Dame had 63 yards on 37 carries against Toledo. That's terrible. Yeah, especially for a team that relies on a power run game. It's just bad. Bowen has had himself a season. And surprising, I think about everyone with his efficiency, because he was not that efficient before he transferred. He had 69.1% completion rate, 605 yards. And Purdue under Braum has been rolling on all cylinders, already meeting their win total from last year with a chance to surprise Notre Dame. Plummer has been absolutely excellent, but a run game that has struggled with the mix of their lead rusher Horvath breaking his leg could lead the game plan to become one-dimensional, as is Notre Dame's. The one thing Notre Dame has seemed to be untested is how they will face a good quarterback. I think they have a very tough test here. It's going to be a close game, but once again, Notre Dame sneaks out by the skin of their teeth. I'm going to make a reference to the 2014 FSU Seminoles. I think that that's kind of the build that they're going for this so far this season. Not so fast, my friend. I got Purdue. Notre Dame has struggled in their first two games of the season. Meanwhile, Purdue just beat UConn by 50 at UConn. No, it is UConn. But still, beating 49 to nothing on the road, that's pretty impressive. This is one of the best Purdue offenses we've seen in a long, long time since Joe Tiller days. And their defense has playmakers, notably an all-Big Ten defensive end that's going to make life hell for Jack Cohen Saturday. Personally, I'm going with the upset here, and I'm picking the Purdue Boilermakers to get their first win in this rivalry in a long, long, long time. Finally, our last game of the week, kind of a tough game for you. We got Bama going on the road to face the Florida Gators in the swamp. How do you think things shake out? Well, here's some facts about the series. Alabama's won the last seven games. Last time Florida beat Bama in the Swamp was in 2005, and the over is 5-0 and in the past five weeks between these teams. Now, we're going to discuss a little bit about Richardson and Emory Jones and who we believe is going to be a better fit. Now, the last 15 times Alabama was beat, the quarterback, all the quarterbacks, like the combined quarterbacks for interceptions, was three. The last time Bama lost to a quarterback that threw an interception was Cardell Jones in 2014. This does not size up for, well for Emory Jones. Anthony Richardson, I believe, needs to be the starting quarterback because he had to be dynamic. You will not be Alabama playing fundamental football without being spectacular. You have to create plays out of nothing like Johnny Manziel or be efficient like Joe Burrow. You have to have that swagger like Bo Wallace or Chad Kelly. You have to be able to be a running threat, but also throw an accurate ball. And Emory Jones does not have that. Richardson last week was 3-3 three and three passing for 152 yards and two touchdowns. He added 115 yards and his score on the ground. That means he had 267 yards on seven touches. And he is the first FBS player in the last 25 seasons to rush for 100 yards, pass for 150, and complete every pass he threw in the game. Yeah, I agree with you. Richardson and Jones. Personally, I think every week that we don't start Richardson is a lost cause. 
Now, Mullen says he's going to stick with Jones in this game, but Richardson has massively outplayed Jones so far, and even though I haven't seen the Gators play in person this season, or obviously didn't last season, Emory's been with the Gators for a while, and so we've had a chance to see him in person. I can literally count zero times I've been impressed with Emory Jones with the eye test. Literally zero. Meanwhile, Richardson, the two games that we've seen him in, he has just gone nuclear. He looks incredible. And every week that they don't start him is a mistake, in my opinion. Uh, now, Bama is going into a very tough environment here. Uh, it's Bryce uh, Young's first road start. It's one of the toughest places to play in all of college football. So if Richardson was starting, I'd be tempted to go with the Gators, but he's not. So I think the tide rolls. What's your final pick? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest storylines that isn't being covered right now for the last two weeks is Nick Saban has said that he doesn't like where his team is. And that kind of primes me, primes up my ears because, you know, Nick Saban's a perfectionist. But that means that this Alabama team isn't, like, undefeatable. I think Florida needs to take advantage of the right side of the Alabama line. That's all the Alabama fans have been talking about is like how weak it is. But with a defensive front like Florida, it can be exploited. Florida has around seven sacks and 13 tackles for loss. And Florida needs some scheme and find a position where they think they have an advantage in physicality and attack that over and over again until they force Alabama to defend that. They need to find one place that they can exploit and keep going to it over and over and over again. Because I'm not sure if any of Florida's offensive units are superior to any of Alabama's defensive units, even when Alabama is injured. I believe that Alabama is going to win this game. I think it might be within 10. But at the end of the day, I just can't trust Emory not to throw that interception, and that's the key stat for me here. So with all that said, what does your Gambler's Corner uh, betting slip of the week look like? So right now, I have UCF over Louisville covering the seven-point spread. UCF is going in on all cylinders clicking. They have an offense that is just absolutely spectacular, comparable to that of Ole Miss. Ole Miss beat Louisville by, I believe, 24. Should be an easy cover for UCF. Cincinnati covers this four-point spread against Indiana. I believe that Cincinnati is just going to go in there, kind of embarrass Indiana a little bit, and easily gets the win. And then I'm going to pick Ohio State covering the 26.5-point spread against Tulsa. Ohio State is going to have to just be clicking offensively and defensively after that loss. Ohio State's one of those teams that after they lose, you kind of don't want to play them because they're just going to show off and show everything that they have, and it's a dangerous atmosphere for Tulsa. My betting slip for this week, I've got Purdue covering the spread at 7.5 points against Notre Dame. They're a 7.5 point dog. Notre Dame hasn't won their two previous games by 7.5 combined. And, I, and I've already said I think Purdue's going to win. But this gives me leeway if Purdue chokes because Notre Dame would have to win by more than one score to be able to, for me to lose this bet. It pays at 10 to 11 odds, so a $5 bet pays four fifty four. I feel very confident about that. Then I've got two teaser bets, single bets. First one, Cincinnati taking them from their line to minus three over IU. I'm buying a little half point there because it gives me the advantage if Cincinnati somehow only wins by a field goal. It's four to six odds, so a five dollar bet only pays three thirty-three, but sometimes you can get lucky on some of these numbers. Also, 
on that same thought, I've got Arizona State from minus three and a half to minus three over BYU. 20 to 29 odds, five dollars pays 344. Then Finally, I've got an old-fashioned money line parlay for you guys. I've got Miami over Michigan State and Penn State over Auburn. The two of those things together is 1.02 to 1 odds, so a $5 bet pays $5.10. That's my betting slip for this week, and I think that is our podcast for this week. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm Justin Cox. And Brian Williams. And we are the Between the Uprights College Football Show. Tell me that it's just bad luck. When will I find where I fit